So we are going to talk about uh, this topic here of, um, it. of course, as we saw reading the text, it's about these lawsuits that were happening within the Corinthian church, but that was just uh, a symptom of the real problem. So we want to get down to what the real issue was and see what God's solution to um, that issue is. So I mentioned this before. Paul refers to the Corinthians as fleshly. And um, like the New King James Version, it, it translates that Greek word carnal. Uh, the NIV that we're using translates that Greek word worldly. Um, the word carnal is actually closer because the word literally means fleshly. So he says to the Corinthians, and this is not a compliment, he says, you are fleshly. <clears throat> what did he mean by that? Well, he meant that although they had the spirit, they were true believers, and therefore they possessed the spirit of God, uh, they were behaving as though they didn't. They were behaving just like everyone else. And so... Another example of their fleshliness is seen in the verses that we read. Uh, Paul originally spoke that word to them in relation to the divisions that were among them and so forth. But then we went on to see how there was also sexual immorality among them. That was another manifestation of their fleshliness. And now the things that he is addressing here, Christians are suing one another and doing so in the law courts of the day before unbelievers. And according to Paul, because of this, they are completely defeated. Paul just says, this is just a complete failure. This is a complete defeat. Uh, another version reads, utterly failing. You are utterly failing. So what were they utterly failing at? Well, they were utterly failing to personally be like Christ, who they were uh, professing to follow. And so their behavior is an utter failure in that regard. Jesus was nothing like this. So they're failing in that regard. But secondly, they're failing collectively to live as citizens of the kingdom of God and to model before a watching world God's alternative to man's corrupt and unjust social systems. You see, God's intention, this has always been the case with his people. If you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, for example, when God is talking about how he's brought this people, Israel, how he's brought them out of bondage in Egypt and he's brought them through the wilderness and he's uh, bringing them into the promised land, God says one of the reasons that he's doing this is he wants to, to use them to show the nations what the people of God look like, what, a, what an amazing thing it is to know this God and to be in a relationship with him and to have his statutes and his laws and how... Uh, this was to be something for the surrounding nations that they would look at them, they would look at Israel and say, that's the way life is supposed to be lived. They would look at Israel and say, we, we want to have their God. So that's God's intention for the church as well. Uh, one author put it like this. Crucial to Paul's point is his view of the church as an eschatological community whose existence as God's future people absolutely determines its life in the present age. The future realities for which Paul are as for the future realities which for Paul are as certain as the present itself 
condition everything the church is and does in the present. So in other words, the church presently is to reflect what it is destined to be. An eschatological community is a community that is destined in the future to something, and in this case, it's destined to glory. So the church is presently to reflect what it is destined to be in the future, the sanctified, beautified, glorified people of God. So swindling one another, suing one another, demanding our personal rights, these are all antithetical to the way of Christ. So in other words, they're behaving just completely the opposite of how they were supposed to be behaving, of how God intended them to be behaving. And because they were behaving this way, they were misrepresenting God to the culture. Jesus set an example for us. And so here's what it says concerning Christ. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So the Corinthians and many Christians today have yet to learn that the gospel calls and empowers us to a new way of living personally. It's to affect me as a person, a new way of living, and a new way of living collectively in community as the people of God. So that's, that's what the gospel's called us to. That's what the gospel empowers us to, to live a new way. So the Corinthians were failing and stumbling before the world because they had forgotten, perhaps, or were just simply neglecting to take into account their destiny, their identity, and their calling to be like Christ. So those three things, I want to just look at those things and see how they were failing in regard to, again, their destiny, their identity, and their calling. And then I'm gonna look at each of these and see how this applies to us today. So first of all, in verses one through five, Paul is talking about their destiny. I mean, he's rebuking them for their behavior, but, but he's doing so based on, on their destiny. Look what he says. He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the unjust? That's the better translation of the word there, ungodly. Unjust for judgment instead of before the Lord's people. Here it is. Here's our destiny. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we, God's people, will judge angels? How much more than the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? So first thing, he addresses their destiny. Uh, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? It's fallen angels that's being referenced there, not holy angels. But, but this idea that the church is somehow going to participate in the judgment in the future. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the judge, and he's going to judge the world, and the church is going to participate with him in that in some way. And then we know from other passages of Scripture that uh, the church believers are going to rule and reign with Christ on the earth. Now, quite honestly, Reading this passage about the church judging the world and thinking of the condition of the church today, that sounds kind of scary. It's like, what? 
man. And I can imagine somebody on the outside, you know, looking in at all the crazy stuff that goes on in the church and scratching their head thinking, what? They're going to judge the world? Why? And that, that's a valid concern because they're not living up to who they are supposed to be. They're not reflecting that they would have a legitimate basis for being part of this judgment. They're looking just like everybody else. Now, in regard to the saints judging the world, Daniel chapter 7, verse 27 says that that will be the case. Uh, it reads like this, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. So, so God is going to hand over the, basically the uh, governance of the world to his people. Now, Let's thank him that it's going to be after we've been refined, purified, transformed, glorified, all of that. that. That's when it's going to happen. But since that is our destiny, we should be thinking like that and we should be behaving like that presently. Paul's message is clear. Those who name the name of Jesus and claim to follow him have an astonishing destiny in the future. That's a mind blower. Like, what? We are going to be part of this ruling and reigning with Christ? Yes, an astonishing destiny, which results in an astonishing responsibility in the present. So you see, because of where we're headed, because of who uh, God intends us to be. That's that eschatological community. Uh, God has this purpose for us ultimately. Because of that, we have an astonishing responsibility. We are responsible to live in such a way that the world looks on, not in fear or amazement that we would be involved in the governance of the future world, but looking on and saying, in essence, I can, I can see that. that. Going back to the Deuteronomy passage, that's what God was saying. The nations that surround Israel, they're going to look at you if you do what I say. If you live according to what I'm giving you in my law, the nations are going to look around you and say, what nation is like this? There's no other nation like this. There's no nation that has laws like this. There's no nation that has righteous standards like this. That's what the church is to be. So with such a destiny, here's the question that Paul is asking. With such a destiny, how then are you unable to deal with trivial matters? You know, if this is your destiny, how is it that you can't settle a dispute among yourselves? How is it that you even have these disputes? That's the bigger question. But how is it that when the disputes arise. How is it that you can't settle this? How is it that you have to take your dirty laundry, so to speak, and go air it out in the public in the, uh, the civil courts of the day? That's what Paul's asking them. And, and his point is, don't you see how wrong this is? Don't you see how this is a blight on the testimony of the church? When you who claim to be the people of God, when you who claim to have all of this wisdom and these righteous standards and all of this and this wonderful Savior, but you're in a dispute, you can't even settle it, so you're going to go out to the courts. People that you even perceive their, their judgments are often unjust and you're going to take your case before them. And notice Paul uses a word like, do you dare do this? So how is this the case? Now, here's how this is the case. And this is always the case when sin enters into our lives and begins to get a foothold on us. It leads us to irrational, illogical, and downright stupid 
behavior. It's really true. It does. It just makes us dumb. It makes us crazy. And we don't do, I am almost positive that the Corinthians, these that Paul's dealing with here who are engaged in these battles together, I'm sure that that, that never even crossed their mind. They, all they were concerned with was their own rights. All they were concerned with, with uh, was making sure that they won the battle and they weren't even thinking in terms of like, oh, this probably doesn't look that good to the onlooking world. Because that's what sin does. It just, it, we do illogical things. We do irrational things. We do, we do stupid things and we don't think about, oh, I didn't, I didn't really think that. But that is indeed what happens whether we are thinking it or not. So that's the first problem, their destiny. Secondly, their problem is due to the fact that they've either forgotten their identity in Christ or they're just conveniently ignoring that they are the Lord's people. And Paul refers to them here as the Lord's people twice in verses one and two. Now, the Lord's people, this is, again, the translation of, of the NIV. Um, the desire behind the translators is for the average reader today to just understand what is being said without any words that would, that would complicate it. So the word here in most other translations, especially the older ones, is the common word saint. So why would they switch out God's people or, or saint for God's people? Well, because saint has been somewhat confusing to people over the years. Uh, saint means God's people, but saint has become to mean, because of the influence, say, of the Roman Catholic Church, it's come to mean a special category of people, uh, a, a unique person. Very few people who have uh, ever attained to sainthood. But the word saint, it really does mean God's people, but I think they should have added holy because it's implied that God's people are holy. And this is the point. They've lost sight of their identity as the holy people of God. So the holy people of God are people who would not lie or cheat or put themselves above others. The holy people of God are the people who are going to be committed to doing what is right and just and good. So Paul, in a sense, even indirectly, he's reminding them of their identity. Look, have you forgot that you are God's holy people? And since you're God's holy people, that implies that you would behave a certain way and not behave a certain way. So that's the second thing. The third thing is he addresses their calling. He addresses their calling in verses six through eight. So he says, but instead, this is what's going on. Um, there's nobody among you apparently that can settle the dispute so instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in the sight of unbelievers, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already, or you have utterly failed. And now he says this, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters, or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So we're talking about their calling. What is their calling? Paul says that why not rather be wronged? Oh, this is, this is so uh, countercultural. It's so counterintuitive to all of us, right? What do you mean be wrong? What do you mean let this person get away with this? Because that's what Paul is saying. What Paul is arguing here is that uh, 
you know what? It would be better for you to suffer a loss than for you to go out into the public as Christian people and sue one another so the watching world could see that. He said, it'd be, it'd be better just to take the loss. Because if you take the loss, Christ is honored. If you insist on your own way and your own rights, then inevitably Christ is going to be dishonored. Now, why not rather be wronged? You see, Paul is basing this on the fact that this is what Jesus did. Jesus was wronged. And he accepted the wrong. Now, earlier I referenced 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to go back and I want to read the whole passage and listen to what Peter says about Jesus and what he says about us in relation to what Jesus did. He said, to this you were called. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So you see, we're destined to glory. Our identity is saints and we're called to follow in the example of Jesus. And then what does it say about him? It says, who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So you see, Paul is saying, look, this is the example that Jesus set for us. You know, I think oftentimes we make the mistake, I think this is common in the church, we make the mistake of saying, well, you know, Jesus was perfect, I can't be perfect, therefore I thank God for his grace that I'm saved and I'm not gonna worry about trying to be perfect because I'll never be perfect. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say for us to consider Jesus in that way. It says that Jesus is our example, an example to be followed. And here we see that rather than um, fight for his own rights, so to speak, he takes the wrong and he puts himself in the hands of God says, I'm going to trust God. Now, this is what Jesus did. This is also what he taught. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said many things, but I want to focus on what he said here, and it will be familiar to you. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And now listen to this. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand your coat over as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So you see, Paul is, is just like, he doesn't have to go far to show them how wrong they are. Look, Jesus said that the very issue that you're involved in here in the church in Corinth that is giving a bad name to the gospel, the very issue that you're involved in, Jesus himself addressed it. He said, if someone wants to sue you and take away your shirt, Give them your coat as well. Wow. That just sounds crazy, doesn't it? Well, it is crazy. But in the eyes of the world, that's how we are supposed to look. We're supposed to look like crazy people. Like, wait. No, no, you don't do that. 
No, you stand up for yourself. You stand up for your rights. You take what's yours. That person wronged you, you sue them. You have a right to do that. That's our cultural mentality, and I'm afraid that's the mentality in the church as well. See, here Jesus is dealing with the natural inclination to retaliate and to not let anyone take advantage of or disrespect or rip us off. He's saying this, don't let your natural inclinations determine your actions but let the spirit of your heavenly father govern your response. That's what he's saying. You see, our natural inclination is to retaliate, isn't it? Our natural inclination is to get back at the person who's doing us harm or damage or whatever the particular case might be. That is naturally the way we want to respond. So again, that's why he says to the Corinthians, you're fleshly. Because you're just carrying out what's natural. But the truth is you're spiritual. So you need to submit to the spirit. You see, this is what the spirit of God does in the life of a person who puts their trust in Christ and is purpose of purposefully uh, seeking to obey him. The Spirit gives us the power to do what we naturally would not do. The thing that we would be uninclined to do, the Spirit enables us to do it. And it's the Spirit of our Heavenly Father who, this is how our Father is. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, this is, this is what Paul's doing. Again, he's appealing to their destiny. He's appealing to their identity. He's appealing to their calling. When he says to them, why not be wronged? They would naturally say, what are you talking about? That's crazy, Paul. I'm not gonna let this person get rip me off. Paul says, why? That's what Jesus did. And not only did Jesus do it, he called us to do it as well. So the question then is, what are we to think of this in our situation today? So our situation today, I think, is some, somewhat different than things were back then. But I think that in principle, this still totally applies. So let's look at a few um, things where this would apply to us. First thing to note is that the real issue here is the believers suing other believers. So, so that's the problem that Paul is addressing here. And back beyond the, the suit, there's the conflict itself. Why are you having a conflict? And notice he said, remember, he said that he said that this action that you're taking is evidence that you've already completely failed. So what's he talking about? They've already completely failed in regard to loving one another, in regard to how they are to live together relationally. And now the lawsuit is just the outward evidence of the failure that's taken place. You see, again, God has called us, he's given us his spirit, and he's called us to live together a certain way. He's called us to forgive each other. He's called us to seek to honor one another and to love one another and not to slander 
or swindle or defraud or whatever other thing that might happen among us. He's called us not to do those things. But when we do those things and they manifest themselves in something like this lawsuit, he says you're completely defeated. This is a complete defeat. So we've got to go back and just say, okay, wait, we got to start fresh. Let's just forgive and let's realize that we can't behave like this as the people of God. He's called us to behave differently. Now, the second thing I want you to note is the passage has nothing to say about lawsuits in general or in the case of a Christian in a lawsuit with an unbeliever. And I just simply say this for instructional reasons because I've had this question asked many times um, over the years. So is this saying that, you know, that there should not be courts, there should not be even the possibility uh, for a lawsuit? No, it's not saying that. Paul's not addressing lawsuits in general. He's addressing this specific situation here. Now, thirdly, and this is very relevant today, today we have what are actually known as frivolous lawsuits. So a, a lawsuit, you know, today people just, it's like the default mode. It's, I'm gonna just sue you because I'm gonna sue you. Because I can sue you. And this happens all the time. And these are generally frivolous lawsuits. And I do not believe that Paul is uh, forbidding someone to defend themselves against a frivolous lawsuit. We as a church have been sued many times, frivolous lawsuits. And a frivolous lawsuit, sometimes even brought by a person who's a professing Christian, but the objective in the end is always, I'm gonna get rich. So some years ago, we had this situation. I'll just give you an example of what I'm talking about. We had this situation where um, we were notified that we were being sued. And we were being sued. Uh, there was a situation that happened in a church, a small church in the Midwest. And that church in the Midwest um, was part of the larger Calvary Chapel, you know, group of churches and somebody had, uh, you know, done something wrong at that church. And so some of the families in the church, they sued that church. But that was a small church that didn't have much that they could sue for. So what probably their attorney said, hey, well, there's this big Calvary Chapel that probably has a lot of money, so let's include them in the lawsuit because they have the same name. And so we were brought into that suit. We, had, we didn't know the pastor. We didn't know anything about the church. And the person that the lawsuit was all centering around, we had never heard of this person. In our entire lives, the person had never been to this church in his entire life. But somehow, we were culpable. And so they were going to get some money from us. And in a case like that, of course, we had to defend ourselves. So what I'm saying is I don't think Paul is, that's not the, the type of thing that he's talking about. Again, he's talking about this, this contention within that spills over, is not resolved. Isn't there anyone among you that can resolve this? That's part of, of his rebuke to them. Why aren't you solving the problem internally? Why is it that you're taking it outside? That's what he's talking about. But the bigger issue here is how we follow and represent Christ in a culture that puts personal rights and self-preservation above everything else. That's the culture we live in, and that culture has uh, seeped into the church. 
So how do we follow and represent Christ in a culture that puts personal rights and self-preservation above everything else? Here's the answer, and it's not one that you're going to like. Suffer wrong. Sometimes, in some cases, God says, let it go. Suffer wrong. In some cases, it's an inconvenience. In some cases, it's more serious. And secondly, entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously. This is how we are to handle things. Again, this is so opposite of the world. But it's also opposite of the way most people think in the church today. So I'll tell you a couple of stories. Some time ago, uh, someone came to me and shared with me how um, someone had um, deceived them and swindled them out of millions of dollars. Not hundreds, not thousands, millions. And, you know, they shared with me the story and the person, I, you know, it's like, so tell me about the person who's done this or, you know, my assumption, of course, is obviously this is a non-Christian, find out, oh no, this person is, uh, you know, an elder in his church. He's an upstanding member of the congregation and so forth, uh, but... swindling this person out of this amount of money. So it, as the thing unfolded, uh, there, there were people with good legal minds that came in and said, you know, you can fight back. You know, you, you don't have to take this kind of a thing, you know. So this is like a strategy and we can, pursue it, we can go down this road with pretty confident that we could recover at least a considerable amount that was taken. And so the, the person said, well, okay, thank you. I, I want to pray about it. And in the end, they came back and they said, I feel like the Lord wants me to just let it go. Now, when they told me that, the guy who's preaching this sermon to you, my humanity really reared up. My flesh. I was like, wait, are you sure? I mean, this is just evil. And, you know, I mean, my natural tendency was you need to pursue everything, every avenue that's available to you to, to get this thing uh, dealt with. And, you know, the response was just simply, no, I, I just believe the Lord has called me to let it go. And I just thought, Wow even though my own inclination at that moment was to coach that person to, you know, maybe, maybe you should fight it. Um, they did exactly what Paul said here. They suffered the wrong. And what did they do? They said, I'm going to leave it in God's hands. I'm going to just trust the Lord. Another situation, uh, Divorce situation, of course, sometimes those, again, are out of our control. You end up in a legal thing with, with a divorce, obviously. Um, but the one, the, per, the person who was being divorced, not the one who had filed for the divorce, was just there with the attorney and was just saying, you know what, whatever they want, I just want to... I don't want to make life difficult for them. I want to just uh, be as gracious as possible and, you know, just did stuff that was unheard of. 
And when it was all said and done, the attorney, who's not a Christian, comes to this person and says this, I want to tell you, you restored my faith in humanity. Wow. That's powerful. You restored my faith in humanity. Now, of course, attorneys, you know, they see it all. They see all of the greed and all of the, just the gross things that happen in the context of these lawsuits. And, you know, as some of us, of course, even heard that some of them are the embodiment of all of those gross things as well. Some attorneys are um, real crooked. Um, of course, not all of them have friends that are great attorneys. But, but this non-Christian watching this Christian navigate this thing said, I've never seen anything like this before. That person was doing what Jesus is telling us to do. That person was doing the very thing that Paul said to do here. Just rather than take it into the court and turn it into a big conflict and the other person before, that was what they said, you know, I just feel like I don't want to go into that kind of a thing where two Christians are there battling it out for these millions of dollars before the court. That blows people's minds. That shows people that, oh, Christians are different. Wow. Man, following Jesus, it's kind of crazy, but... It's impressive at the same time. So that is sometimes what we are called to do. One more story. A friend of mine some years ago, his child died as a result of, um, you know, some mistake on the part of the medical worker. And so there was a malpractice suit that they were being encouraged into. And there were some powerful forces that wanted to support and get behind them, uh, guaranteeing, I mean, they were literally going to sue a state. And so guarantee we are going to get a lot of money out of this. And... Of course, they lost their child. So that was something that, and it, and it was because of negligence on the part of this medical worker. So anyway, this opportunity kept being presented before him and, and my friend was reaching out to me and he you know, was asking me for counsel and advice. What did I think? And I said in the end, I said, you know what? As hard as this is going to be, I believe you should let it go. And knowing his condition at the time, mentally and everything, I said, because if you don't, this will probably kill you going through all of this. And he prayed about it, felt like that was the, the word of the Lord for them and just walked away from the situation. Put it in God's hands. And God restored their lives. You know, we're never going to lose doing things God's way. It might look like we're losing from, from the world around us. It might look like we're losing to ourselves. But the fact is we're not losing. And even though it might look like we're losing to the world around us, people are going to say, that's, that's crazy, but that's, wow, man, that restores my faith in humanity. That's what we're talking about here. So, so we suffer wrong and entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously, remembering we are following Jesus. 
We're following Jesus. We're following his example, as it said there in Peter. The world is watching and longing for an alternative. We are citizens of that alternative kingdom here to show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and to invite others into that kingdom that is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Listen, we're in the kingdom already. And the kingdom, this eschatological community, this kingdom we're destined to rule and reign with Christ. We're in it now. It's not fully manifested what it's going to be. But since we're in it now, we are to be living the life of the kingdom. You know, the, the passages we read in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5 through 7 is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount because it was on a mountainside that Jesus delivered this sermon. There's been all kinds of confusion among Christians over the years as to what is the application of the Sermon on the Mount because there's some pretty hard stuff in there, right? Like, you know, somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other, and so forth. Um, that's hard stuff. So, so scholars, theologians, they've debated. Some have said, well, we know none of this is possible, so this is just telling us how things are going to look when we get into the kingdom. <laughs> They're failing to recognize we're already in the kingdom. And what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is really, it's, it's the, the way of life for the subjects of the kingdom. This is how the kingdom people are to live. Because the kingdom has already come. The kingdom is in us because of the spirit. And yes, it's going to have a fuller manifestation where it's going to encompass the whole earth. But for now, we are. Collectively, the community that is demonstrating to the world what it's like to live under the righteous reign of Christ. Final thing I want to say, I'm more convinced than ever that if we're going to see people drawn to Christ and his church in the days ahead, it will be through Christians not only preaching the gospel, but living in the way of Jesus. You know, seriously, the days are over where, where you could get by with not practicing what you preach. There's so much skepticism. There's so much cynicism in the culture today regarding the church the last thing anybody's going to listen to is somebody who says one thing but does another. And a lot of the skepticism and cynicism in the world toward the church today is because of that very thing. Because people have preached one thing and done something completely different. So I do believe that God is going to draw people to Christ and into the church in the days ahead. But I also believe that our part is to not just preach, we must preach, but we've got to live in the way of Jesus. And that's the way God has always intended it to be. It's never been meant to be any other way. And that's why Paul is coming down so hard on the Corinthians because basically what they're doing is they're preaching one thing and then contradicting it in their personal and collective lives. And so we can't do that. That is no longer going to even be tolerated. We have got to live out what Jesus said. And when we do, people might think we're crazy but it's a good crazy. It's a crazy that says, wow. Man, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen anyone just walk away from millions of dollars because they wanted to honor God. Wow. 
It's kind of stupid, but it's also impressive. <laughs> I'm thinking like the person in the world. Yeah, that, that, that affects people. They see that this is real. And so as we live this out, the world sees it's real. And then when we share verbally, it gives credibility to what we say. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to live accordingly, to live according to our destiny, to live according to our identity, to live according to the calling. Lord, to follow in your steps and to take your teaching to heart. And Lord, to suffer wrong and to put it in your hands and not to be all caught up with our personal rights or just the, the idea that we're not going to let anybody wrong us. Lord, may we more and more be like Jesus. And Lord, as the Corinthian church was just kind of a, a sampling of what has gone on and is going on in much of your church today, Lord, have mercy on us and restore us. And may we personally and collectively, as much as this passage applies to us, may we apply it so that the world would know that we are your disciples and you are the living Savior. Help us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, I, I would just pray for anyone this morning who you know, maybe this is hitting home, maybe this is speaking to something that's actually going on in their lives. I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't resist, but they would just yield to the spirit. And Lord, as maybe we'll be confronted with things that we have not yet been confronted with, help us, Lord, to do what you would have us to do. To be like our Father in heaven. And Lord, finally, I just would pray for anyone that's with us today that perhaps doesn't know you in a personal way. Draw them to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name.